So I went to buy a pair of running shoes, and the salesperson said, are you going to run a marathon? And I said, no, never. And he said, why not? He said, one my age. And he said, well, why else? And I said, there is so much discipline involved. Uh, it takes full dedication. It takes setting goals, um, pursuing those goals, moving beyond those goals. And it means amending my diet. And it means being uncomfortable and getting up earlier in the morning. And no, I'm not running any marathon. I just want a pair of comfortable shoes to take my dog for a walk. But then he began to tell me his own inspirational story. He says, I was just like you. <laughs> I don't think so. And he said, no, I, I started out, I was just going to take walks. And then I just started pushing myself just a little bit and a little bit more each day. I amended my diet. I set these goals, little goals, and then I pursued them. And then he said, I put posters on my walls of, of different people who had uh, run races. And I started learning about people who did marathons and what they ate, and what their diet was like. And I began to copy their strategies. And I became a runner and I just won a marathon. And I said, that is amazing. But that's you. But that is amazing. There's a woman in our church. She's absolutely gorgeous. She's in her 60s. And she won the um, over 60 marathon, the half marathon at Disney. So when I see her, I'm just like, there she is. We were going to Beach Fest uh, one year. Brian and I, we were riding our bikes to Beach Fest. And we saw her. And she kept pace with us as we were riding our bikes. And I mean, she's just amazing. And, and she's inspirational, absolutely inspirational. You know, we've all heard that phrase as we get older, use it or lose it. And I try to keep to a minimum of exercise. And my son-in-law gave me a routine to do every day. And, and the reason I do weights is because I heard that lifting weights can keep you um, from Alzheimer's. And that's one of my fears is dementia or Alzheimer's. And I read this article about balancing and then doing weights and the repetition. So I said, okay, Michael, give me a routine. So he says, okay, mom, I want you to get five pound weights. And I'm like, okay, five pound weights. So I went to TJ Maxx, got my five pound weights. And he said, get a kettlebell, you know, kettlebell that weighs 15 pounds. And so I did. And then he gave me a routine. And I was like, this is not going to work. So I went back to TJ Maxx. And I got two pound weights and I got a five pound kettlebell. I figure start small and work up. And I am, I'm working up. I'm on three pound weights now. But I have found that you've got to keep, keep doing it. And I know it's paying off because the other day I came downstairs in my pajamas. I had a friend over from Austria and she looked at me and she turned and she said, oh, I want to look just like Cheryl when I'm old. So there you go. <laughs> it's working. The author of Hebrews uses the analogy of a race to describe the life of faith. Now, you've got to remember that these Hebrews were discouraged. That's why this epistle is being written. They're discouraged. They've been persecuted. They've been ostracized. And there is this idea, this concept that is beginning to take um, 
force among them that if they just return to the law or if they just return to the rituals or just return to the temple practices and the feasts, that they'll be accepted again and, and they can just kind of have Jesus and the law, Jesus and the rituals. And the author of Hebrews is warning them that they must go forward in faith in the work of Christ alone, that that's where the power is, that's where the strength is. And so in chapter 11, he has listed all these heroes and heroines of faith, these people that accomplished the extraordinary simply by looking to God, simply by obedience to God. Now, as he comes into chapter 12, he describes it like a marathon. And he says, it's, in a, you know, it's like putting pictures on the wall of all your heroes, all the people that have run the race and won. And we are aware of their handicaps that they overcame. We study their strategies. We avoid their mistakes and follies, and we use their stories to inspire us. And we are willing to remove, like these in the posters, those encumbrances, those snares and hindrances to our progress. And for some of them, it might be alcohol. I know that marathon runners do not drink. You avoid parties because they weigh you down. Bad company, distractions, drugs, illicit activity. You want to keep your record so clean so you can qualify for the marathon, so you can run your best. So the coach is the hero. You put yourself 100% under the tutelage of your coach. Why? Because he already won the medal. He's already done everything he's going to require you to do. He has experience. He has hit the goal. He knows exactly what is needed to win and to run in the race. And he has designed a special regimen or routine for you so you can qualify, so you can run, so you can win. There's discipline involved. The coach will make sure that our diet is spot on. He will ensure that we are getting the proper amount of sleep. He's going to push us a little harder each time by increasing the length of the course, by lengthening the exercise time, and he adds a bit more weight to our routine each time, more repetitions, and different exercises that we haven't done before. He praises our strength. He corrects our attitude. And he corrects the way we exercise to keep us from getting hurt. I have this video of stretches that I bought. And I was doing the stretches, and Brian comes in. And there's one where you're, you know, you're just kind of resting in this one stretch. And he, he comes in and he looks at my computer screen and he looks at me and he says, do you think you look like her? I said, well, that's my hope. He goes, there's not even a similarity. You need to look at her again and then try it. <laughs> you know, she's out a little bit. So he gets down on the ground and said, she's more like this. You know, move your hands out to this. I'm like, 
okay, as long as you'll do this with me every day, I will do it. But you know, doing something the wrong way can dislocate something. Have you done that? I, um, I have a friend and she told me that she stays in really good shape by doing push-ups every day. And she said, when I'm on the road and I can't do anything, I do push-ups. So I started doing push-ups and I froze my shoulder. And I remember going to the chiropractor and she looked at me and she said, mm, over 40 and trying to do push-ups, huh? I was like, how did you know? She said, oh, every other woman that comes in here with that problem, they tried to do push-ups. That's why they designed women's push-ups where you bend your knees. But then my dentist was saying, oh yeah, my arm's been bugging me. And I looked at him and I said, are you doing push-ups? He said, how did you know? I said, the Lord told me. <laughs> You're to stop right away. And he said, that's so funny. My brother just you know, burned out his rotor cuff doing push-ups. Or, and he does push-ups. I said, that's why. Push-ups are a sin. They are not to be done. But you know, if you do an exercise the wrong way, you, especially when you're in the ninth year of your fifth decade, you will dislocate something. You know, it's not just a minor thing anymore when you get this old. It's like major, you know? All right, you did that. Now it's hip replacement. But we do all of these things for the goal to be able to play in the game, to be able to cooperate and learn to coordinate our activity with the other players, to be able to endure, to make it through the whole marathon and to gain the victory. So Hebrews chapter 12 begins with the great cloud of witnesses. And he says, therefore, since we are surrounded, since all these people that we know of have run this race, they've all received the goal. We can look at them and learn from their examples. We can learn from Abel, who gave God what God wanted by faith. We can learn from Enoch, who pleased God. Noah, who saved his family. Abraham and Sarah, who received a son of promise. Sarah, who received strength by faith to receive the promised son. Abraham, who passed the test. Isaac and Jacob, who blessed the next generation by faith. Joseph, who understood the future. Moses' parents, who recognized God's anointing on their son. Moses, who made the right choices. Joshua, who brought down the walls of Jericho by faith. Rahab, who was saved from the destruction. Barak, who defeated the enemy. And then Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel. We are to study their stories. We are to be inspired by their stories. We are to relate to their deficits and their triumphs. Don't you find that when you're reading? Sometimes you'll be like, oh, I did that too, David. Totally know where you're at. Have you ever had that? Like, especially in the Psalms where he's discouraged and you're like, this is where I'm at right now. Their triumphs become our triumphs. Their deficits are deficits. We scrutinize their lives and try to avoid their follies. We imitate their strengths. And it's not an option to study these lives. It is a necessity. And otherwise, we will feel isolated, we'll feel alone, we'll be filled with self-pity and say, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. But when you read the Bible characters, you're like, this is worse than my life. 
Have Have you ever had that? Where you're feeling sorry for yourself and then somebody else comes along and their life is so much worse? I remember um, when I lived in England, sometimes I would fall into self-pity. But every year, um, a couple that we knew that was serving in the Ukraine would come through and they would stay with us just an overnight. And then on the back, way back to the Ukraine, they would spend another night with us. Just when I got to the place of self-pity, they would come through. And I mean, their first year on the mission field, um, their son was hit with a kickball and the doctors in the Ukraine told him that their son's eye had to come out. So they flew home. The second year, their daughter needed an emergency appendectomy in the Ukraine. And the fourth, uh, the third year, their youngest son dislocated his arm and broke it. I can't remember how many places and they had to fly to the United States to have it set right. So just when you felt sorry for yourself, just when I was like, poor Cheryl, another pity biscuit for you, you poor thing. This is hard. and Nobody recognizes what a great servant you are. They would come through to spoil my party. I'm telling you, they were party spoilers. It was like, spoiler alert, here they come. And they lived in one, uh, a one-bedroom apartment. Their three kids got the bedroom, and they slept under the dining room table. And the reason they did this was to get the gospel to the Ukrainian people. They went there um, with uh, teenage kids. And when they went, they had to learn a whole new language, a whole new way of life, a whole new way to shop for groceries. And they would sit down and they would just tell us some of the hardships. And I would say, that's it. I am a wimp. I am such a wimp. Lord, forgive me. That life is so much harder. This is, this is all you've called me to. They speak the same language, just better. I'm okay. I'm okay. But that's why we need to read the Bible and to read in these stories of these biblical characters to see the reward of faith, to relate to their deficits and their strengths, to strategize so we can run this race. The Christian walk also requires sacrifice. Jesus said, deny yourself and take up the cross and follow me. It's going to take self-denial. But what are we to deny ourselves? Well, every weight, every weight. There, there are things that we just pick up that become weights. You know, you, read, you see those, um, how many of you have watched that hoarding program? Okay, a few of you. It's disturbing, isn't it, Anne? It's like so disturbing. You know, especially when they're like, we're going to take this mildew-infested dress that's torn in tatters, and we're going to throw it away. And they're like, no, not that dress. I love that dress. You know, I wore that in 1963. Don't take it away. And you're just like, let them take it. Or we're going to throw away this used napkin. No, I got that on my first flight when I was 18 years old. It's like, no, it's used. Get rid of it. But, you know, it becomes weighted and the people can't even walk through their house anymore because they've got so many things. They can't have company. They can't live the life that they used to live because it's just so filled with things. And they've developed an affection for junk, for junk. And we can become so weighted down that we can't get out of our house and even get into the marathon of faith that the Lord has for us. It slows down our pace and it makes it hard to run. 
I know of marathon runners that shave their entire bodies because they believe that even one hair on their body will slow them down. And they get the lightest weight running shoes and clothes because they don't want to feel heavy. And let me say this to you. It is hard to run in stilettos. You who are mothers might have tried that before and you're like, you're trying to chase your kids. I remember wearing stilettos and our Sunday school classrooms were in these buses on the grass in Vista. And I was wearing stilettos and they kept sinking into the grass and I was like stuck, you know? And I had this hyperactive son that liked to push people over and sit on them, kids. And so I'm trying to get to him, but I'm stuck, you know, because my heel is, and Brian came up to me and said, thank you for aerating the soil. It's great. Now we can put the seeds in. But it's hard to run in stilettos, if not impossible, but it's just as hard to run in construction boots. You just can't run because they're just too heavy. And that's what these weights are that we sometimes start collecting. Now, weights can be selfish indulgences and unedifying things, but they can be like activity, they can be objects, but they can also be attitudes. And when David was in exile from Saul, he got so angry at this man named Nabal. He was having this great big sheep shearing party, and everybody knew that at a sheep shearing party, you invite the whole community. There's tons of food, tons of fun. And David and his men had protected Nabal's flocks for a whole season, and now it was sheep shearing time. And so David sent a servant to Nabal and said, we're going to be coming to your party. Can't wait. And Nabal was so angry and he sent a message and said, don't bother. You're, you're nothing. You're not important. You're like a flea. You know, I, I'm for Saul. Don't, don't come to my party. David was so angry because he had invested in Nabal's flock. He had taken care of them. His men had risked their life for this flock and Nabal was not following sheep shearing party etiquette. And so David said to his men, he said, Mount up, God help me if Nabal isn't dead by tomorrow. And he came with the troops to take Nabal and the sheep shearing party down. But Abigail, Nabal's wife, heard about this. And she said to the servants, get all the food together. I'll go out to David. I'll pacify him. She met David with lots of food. Smart woman. In fact, she's called a wise woman. Always meet a man with food. Always meet a man with food. My mother said, if you don't have any food, just put an onion in some olive oil and get it cooking so they think there's food. <laughs> when they ask for dinner, I don't know, I'm still being imaginative, but I've got this much. But when she met David... She said to David, she reminded David of the promises of God and said to David, you don't want Nabal on your record. You don't want this weight. Someday you're going to be king and you don't want this weight. You don't want this mistake that, that you went and you avenged yourself because all of God's promises are going to come true. But this would only be a blight. Like David lost his temper. David can't be trusted. 
She said, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord and evil is not found in you throughout your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life, but the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God and the lives of your enemies. He shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling and it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and is appointed to you ruler over Israel, that this will be no grief to you nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. In other words, she was saying, David, you don't want this weight on your record. You don't want this. Weights are unedifying. They just don't help us in the race. They don't do anything for us, but slow us down. Then we're to lay aside the sin which so easily ensnares us. Isn't that amazing? So easily, like without effort, just traps you, just holds you, and and you can't go on. Proverbs 14.34 says, sin is a reproach to any people. Sin is a trap that binds and holds and keeps someone back. Both weights and sins keep us from being able to advance and participate in the marathon of faith. We need, because of these weights, because of these sins, because this is a marathon, we need to put ourselves 100% under the tutelage of the great coach. He said, looking unto Jesus. This is what we need to do. How can we avoid the sins and the weights? We're going to look unto Jesus. Why? Why Jesus? Because he is the ultimate winner. He is the ultimate champion. That word author means arpegos. It's Greek, captain, champion, winner, initiator, the one that first won the race, the one that first ran it and won. Um, As I was studying for this, I was looking up all sorts of, you know, success stories and famous coaches. And, you know, I'm looking famous coaches. I Google everything. My son always says, that won't work. I'm like, watch this, famous coaches. And boom, it pops up. And Brian said to me, Cheryl, forget that. Just Google John Wooden. That's all you need, John Wooden. So I did. So John Wooden was born in 1910. He went to the University of Indiana, but when he was a young boy, he loved basketball. He played and played and had heroes, and he would love to go to games and watch his his favorite players and what they did right and what they did wrong. When he was only six years old, he could make four out of five free throws from the free throw line which is amazing. I played basketball in high school and college. So those free throws are like amazing. He made All-American three times at Purdue University. And then he went on to coach the Bruins at UCLA. And he did something amazing. In his, he won 10 NCAA games. No other team in history has won. No college team has ever won. 10 NCAA games. Four, that's like 
the year here, like, we're women. Tell us something about flowers. He won the floral award for basketball 10 times. That's just never done. Other colleges have won it four times, but 10 times. It was interesting because one player quit because he said John Wooden was too hard on the players. But Lou Alcinders, also known as um, Abdul-Jabara, he said, Kareem, Kareem Abdul-Jabara, he said he was the best coach he ever, ever had. But the reason he respected him is he knew John Wooden knew the game and had won it and been a champion himself. So we look to Jesus because he's the author, the Arpegos, and the finisher of our faith. He is the champion. He's the hero. He initiated. He started our faith. He's the reason for our faith. He is the course. And then he said, we need to look unto Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right-hand throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Jesus went through worse than you could ever go through. In fact, we sing that song, he was forsaken, that I might not be forsaken. He did all of this for us. He is the finisher, the teleotes, the perfection of the course, the one who did it perfectly. So we look to Jesus, not only as an example, because sometimes we can look at Jesus as an example and say, oh, I need to be more like Jesus. We put the WWJD bracelet on and, you know, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? Let me tell you, you're not Jesus. That bracelet will kill you. It will become a weight and a snare only Jesus. And it's only by the power of Jesus flowing through us. So see, we look to Jesus. Yes, he did it. That's why we can put ourselves completely under his tutelage. That's why we can listen to him. That's why we can obey him. That's why we follow his directives, because he's the author and the finisher. I was talking to this one woman, and um, she's saying, oh, you know, if everyone you pray for is not healed, then either they lack faith or you lack faith. Because Jesus healed everyone he prayed for, everyone he touched 100%. And I looked at her, I said, you're not Jesus and I'm not Jesus. It's not gonna happen. It's not, I said, see, there's no other Jesus. There is one Jesus, even Paul. You think you're better than Paul? Paul had a thorn in his flesh. You think you're better than Timothy who went through all that persecution? And Paul said, you know, put a little wine with your water because of all your afflictions. We're not better than these saints. Jesus is the only one who could heal with 100%. Jesus is the only one. We are not Jesus. How are we healed? How are we touched? We look unto Jesus. We follow Jesus. Oh my goodness, if I could mess it up by a wrong confession, if I could mess it up, if it was dependent on my faith and not on the greatness of Jesus, you know what? I'd be so discouraged and weary in my soul. But I can look to Jesus. I looked at his story 
of love and humility, his goal, the joy that was set before him, what he saw in you, what he saw in me, the hope that he had for us, the potential that he saw in us as the body as a whole, heaven and all he has for us, his accomplishment. He endured the cross. He despised the shame, the association with sin. He endured such hostility from sinners. We look to him for strength. He is at the right hand of the Father. He knows what we need. He prays for us. He makes intercession. He sends the Holy Spirit to give us all that we need. Whenever we stop looking to and considering Jesus, we will become weary and tired of running. Do you ever get tired of that? Activity because you don't see progress. I mean, I don't know about you, but as you get older, the routines, does everything have to be a routine? Yeah, there's always a new, I wear contacts, I've got a routine. I wear makeup, I've got a routine. I use moisturizers, I've got a routine. I, you know, uh, everything is like this routine. I, and, you know, like, and it's all got to be in this order. My daughter's an esthetician, skincare specialist. Mom, you need to wash your face with this. Then you need to uh, tone your face with this and a clean pad. And then, mother, apply the moisturizer like this. It's just like, you know, doesn't that work? She's like, no, mom, routine. But, you know, sometimes I don't see progress. I, I look in the mirror, I see a 59-year-old. I've been using these moisturizers. I supposed to see a 25-year-old. <laughs> and you know, I'm tempted to quit because it takes time. And, and flossing your teeth, seriously? That takes so long. And then I realized I was doing it wrong. The lady says, you show me how you floss your teeth. So I, sh- I showed her and she's like, that doesn't do any good. I'm like, what? She's like, no, no. You go, mm, one down. She said, you're trying to make the holes on each side of your tooth bigger because then it makes your gums grab onto your tooth so you don't get um, gum disease. I'm like, oh, great. That's going to take me longer. You know, I get this goal, and I have to say my goal is off in my bed. My bed is my goal. I get out of it in the morning going, I can't wait to see you again. (laughs) And you know, my routines are the impediments, it's the weights between me and my goal of my bed. You know, the flossing, the brushing, the taking out of the contact lenses and putting them in the right fluids and making sure they get in the right case and the left case because you get them in the wrong sides and, well, you got problems the next day. I accidentally slept in them one time and thought I was healed, but that's another story. But, you know, it's like, oh, and when we don't see progress, we often want to stop. You know, we're like this. We diet for two days, don't see any progress, and we want to quit the diet, right? We start an exercise routine, and we haven't lost inches after doing it one time, and we want to stop. But it's the consistency and the constancy And unless we look to our coach who's cheering us on, we will become discouraged and weary in soul. Is this really doing anything for me? 
And those Hebrews were saying, is this really doing anything for us? We're going through all this persecution. We're going through all this hardship. Is it really working for us? Will we really be able to endure? Are we headed towards a goal? We have to look to Jesus again and again and again for the strength, for the direction, for the motivation. I remember when my parents came to visit us in London. And again, I I could get into pity parties really easy every time they would come to London. And I, I love, I love, 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 love my dad. And I love, 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 love my mom. I was like the type of kid who just the thought of disappointing my mom and dad would make me cry. I just loved my mom and dad. I remember one time the teacher was holding the whole class later in school because we had been talking and I just fell apart. Third grade, just started sobbing because I saw my mom out in the car just waiting for me. And one day a week, my mother would buy a candy bar at Alpha Beta and we would split it. And one week she got to pick it out and the next week I got to pick it out. And all I could think of is her in the car waiting, thinking, where is Cheryl? Not knowing that Cheryl had gotten in trouble for talking and was having to stay five whole minutes after class. Poor mom. You know, and that was just, I just love my mom. And the hardest part of moving to England was leaving my mom and dad. And I was there, I was homeschooling my children, and every time my parents would come over, it was just wonderful. It was just, it was heaven on earth. It was so fun. We would pick out places that we wanted to take them so my dad could pay for us because we couldn't afford it otherwise, and just all sorts of fun spots. I would pick out the best coffee place to take my mom to. And when they would leave, it would just be like my soul was ripped out. And all four of my kids and I, we would cry for days. We would just cry. And I remember this one time that my parents had left and I just said, Lord, tell me, tell me why we're doing this again. Why are we here so far from my parents? Why? And I was in my personal devotions in Colossians chapter three and I opened it up. And when I read this, In verse four, and when Christ who is our life. And it it was, I'm doing this because the Messiah is my life. He's the reason I live and breathe and I came to planet earth. It's for the Messiah. And somehow looking unto Jesus at that moment, realizing that my life was in Jesus, it made it worthwhile. It took the pain and it made it purposeful. It, it made it worth something. What is the sound of one hand clapping? <laughs> Corey Tinboom said this. If you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. But if you look at Christ, you'll be at rest. Looking unto Jesus. Asaph, who wrote Psalm 73, was looking at the world and he was beginning to slow his pace. He said, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
For all day long I've been plagued and chastened every morning. And then, verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Asaph, Asaph, this, this great psalm writer, this great singer at the tabernacle, he said, you know what? I almost quit the race. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, he got his eyes on the wicked. He got his eyes on the world and he said, really, is it worth it? And the discouragement and the weariness in his soul began to set in until he went into the sanctuary, until he got a good look at Jesus. And then when he got a look at Jesus, he said, you know what? I'm not in the slippery place. My enemies are in the slippery place. I'm in such a better place because I've got the Lord. God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. In order to run this marathon of faith, we need to continually be looking unto Jesus. He is our goal. He is our objective. He is our champion. He is our coach. He is our strength. He is our power. Now, a coach invests in his disciples. A coach puts his time. He puts his energy. He gives them all his tricks, all his wisdom. He imparts all of his knowledge, all of his experience to his team, to those who are put under him. So the Lord Jesus is investing in us, his time, his wisdom, his skill, his attention, and he's watching us. There's not a coach in the world who doesn't exercise discipline over his team. Without restrictions, repetitions, practices, correction, consequences, there will never be change or improvement. Discipline is to make a player better and to bring him to his highest potential. Sometimes the best way to learn is by suffering the consequences of a wrong move or of a sin. I met Muhammad Ali years ago at a banquet we were both at, and he came right up to me and he said, I'm not going to hell. I said, okay, good. No, I'm not going to hell. And then he took out a book of matches. He said, every time I get tempted to sin, I light one of these and he lit it. And he's holding this match. He goes, and then I burn myself. And you're like, ah. He goes, because hell will be much worse than that. And then he walked away. People say, do you think he was saved? I don't know. I just know, don't play with matches. <laughs> Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12, when Solomon was speaking to his son about the way of wisdom and therefore preparing his son for the throne, exhorted him not to despise chastening. Don't hate it. Don't resent it. Accept it and use it to change. My mom used to quote this proverb, it's Proverb 1.8, and she would paraphrase it. But if I did that typical, you know, seven years old and up phrase, I know, I know, I know, I know. She would say, Cheryl, a fool hates instruction. She got me there. I didn't want to be a fool. So I would listen. 
because I didn't want to be called a fool. I didn't want to be thought of as a fool, especially by your mother. I didn't want to be no fool. So I would listen. She could get me every time with that one. Cheryl, a fool hates instruction. I don't know. I don't know. Tell me, tell me. It just would write my attitude. You know, I remember my mother loved hospital corners. You know what a hospital corner is? You know, on a, on a bed, when she made the bed, she would get the, it was like so perfect. Her mother had been a nurse. Her adopted mother had been a nurse. So her bed corners were just like perfect. And she'd be like, Cheryl, watch me. You know, you need at least three inches going under the mattress. And I mean, I mean, my mother practically measured it. She knew it perfectly. And I'd be like, this lesson again. And she'd be like, Cheryl, a full height's instructions. Okay, mom, show me again. How do you do this? I remember she taught me how to iron. I mean, my mom was amazing. She taught me how to iron. And, you know, I watched a friend the other day, and she just grabbed a shirt. She went at it really aggressively. I'm like, what are you doing? There's a right way and a wrong way to iron. You start with the collar band. Then you do the collar. Then you do the yoke. You might want to take notes on this. <laughs> then you go to the sleeve. You know, you go to the cuff. Then you go to the sleeve. Then you go to the, the panels in the front and then the back. And you, why do you do it that way? Because if you do it any other way, those things that you've already ironed will get wrinkled again. This is progressive ironing taught by Kay Smith. A fool hates instruction. You guys better take notes. But I remember that she took me and she taught me. She taught me how to pick out vegetables at the market. You know, um, this is what you're looking for the color, the texture, all of that. And I listened. I, I'm great at picking out carrots to this day. Too bad I don't like them, but I'm really good at picking them out. We are, you know, but sometimes I would get it wrong. I would get it wrong. My mom would say, you didn't start with a collar, did you? You didn't start, you didn't do the cuff before the sleeve. How she knew these things, I don't know, but I think it had to do with the wrinkles in the shirt. Not quite sure. But we are to accept it, embrace it, and learn from it. Chastening is purposeful. It's not just to punish and go, eh, you did it wrong. No, God doesn't do it like that. In fact, we're told that in Isaiah that God does not afflict willingly. He's got a purpose, and it's to bring out our potential. Chastening is an indication of God's care. I never, ever chastened anyone else's child. Their behavior was the fault of their parents. But I chastened my kids because they were a reflection of me. They were a reflection of Brian. As a child, I never got away with anything. That's part of being Chuck Smith's daughter. I lived in this fishbowl existence, always watched, always scrutinized. You'd think it would have been so good, only privately. But publicly, there was this constant scrutiny. And I remember one time, this, this girl was sitting next to me. And she was saying like the meanest things. We're at a junior high camp. And she was like, you know what? I don't think that, and it was just like constant. I was ignoring her, ignoring her. And finally I turned to her and I said, will you just shut up? And the counselor said, Cheryl, oh, and I got taken out. I got prayed with. I had people laying hands on me. <laughs> then they're like, we're sorry, but we have to tell your dad that you said shut up. I'm like, 
And they're saying, and she, the girl who was at, she's like, kind of hurt my feelings. And they're like, oh, you poor thing. I always got caught. I've never been able to get away with a bad attitude or a bad habit. Even my kids would call me on things. Nothing. I remember being in the tent. I had just made the girls' athletic team at my junior high, and I was passing notes to my girlfriend and talking, and I got this note. Will the girl in the red jacket please be quiet so we can hear Pastor Chuck preach? I was the girl in the red jacket. And I remember, like, you know, hiding that note, throwing it away. And my mom and dad were sitting in the car, and they start talking about people who talk out loud while dad was trying to preach. And I remember saying, I'd never do that. And my mom turned and said, wouldn't you? And I knew she knew. I knew that person that wrote me a note was a tattletale. And they had already gone to my parents. And I remember my mom said, honey, you can't get away with it because we love you so much. You can't get away because the Lord Jesus loves you so much. Because you're his daughter. So the standards are higher. The pressure is more. Not because you're unloved, but because you're loved. Not because you have no potential, but because God sees potential in you. If you're able to get away with evil, if you're able to get away with sin, if you're able to get away with a bad attitude, that's not a good sign. That's not promising. Don't congratulate yourself on that one. Let me tell you, if you're able to get away with it, I am more loved than you are. If you can get away with sin, if you can hide it and nobody sees and you're never caught, that's a bad thing. That's a bad thing. That means maybe you're not saved. Maybe you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus because those who are legitimately the daughters of God get caught. We always get caught. We never get away with anything because we're loved, because we're adored, because God sees potential in us, because there's a promise he wants to make sure that we get that he wants to fulfill. Others can get away with it. Mm -mm, We can't. We're the daughters of God. We're totally legit. And we cannot get away. Chastening is an indication of God's care. Where there is no chastening, there's a sign that no one cares. And that child has no parent. God's chastening is always restorative. And it's always a sign of his love. It's a sign of legitimacy. It's a sign that he sees potential and the surety of the promises that he has for us. He is ensuring that we receive and qualify for all the good things he has for us. It's a sign that he is training us for peaceable fruit. That peaceable fruit of righteousness. Now we all now know that it's not easy to be corrected. We hate to be corrected. We hate to deal with the consequences of our actions. We all hate chastening. And it never seems to be joyful at the time that it's happening. I remember we used to do 
the most um, rigorous exercise class. And I don't know why we did it. There were three of us. It actually was this friend of ours taught it. Um, her husband uh, worked at Camp Pendleton and would teach the other soldiers 150 ways to kill men with your bare hands. And then she did the exercise part of it. She trained Marines in Hawaii and she offered this class. And she's like, oh, Cheryl, come. And I don't know why. I think because I paid for it. I felt like I made a commitment. And I was with two other women and we were like dying. We hated that class. We we liked her, but we hated that class so much. I mean, we hated it, but we all three showed up every week, twice a week, we showed up. And as soon as it was over, we went and got coffee mochas with the whipped cream and pumpkin scones. We rewarded ourselves for going to that class. But you know what? There was a reward for doing that class besides the mochas. You know what's so funny? We'd always get skinny mochas with whipped cream. You know, there's something wrong with that. No chastening seems to be joyful at the present, but grievous, nevertheless, or painful. You know, every exercise, it, you know, what is it that the famous Jane Fonda used to say? No pain, no gain. You know, we're always got to push ourselves just a little bit more. It does not seem to be joyful, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I found my reaction to chastening has to do with the pride of my heart. If I am in a preenful place, I don't know what preenful means, but it's something that you should really look up. If I am in a prideful place, when I'm chastened, I resent it, I despise it, I'm ashamed, I'm condemned. But if my heart is in the right place, I laugh at my own folly. I'm able to cooperate, I'm able to change, I'm able to learn, and I'm able to progress and do better because of it. And what are we supposed to do with chastening? Well, it tells us we're to strengthen the hands that hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for our feet so that what is lame will not be dislocated so we don't get worse, but we get better. Chastening helps us to get it right. It's the worst thing when you get in the habit of doing something the wrong way. Have you ever done that? Oh, I remember my son holding a spoon the wrong way. You know, I think he held it like this. And I was like, no, honey, you got to hold it like this. And I told him, sit up straight, put your spoon like this. He got this horrified look on his face. Horrified. He was 10. Horrified look. And he looked at me. And I'm just trying to get him to hold his spoon and his fork the right way. And all of a sudden he screamed out, dad, help. Mom's trying to teach me manners. He said, I'm not trying to feminize you. I'm just trying to teach you how to hold a fork. And at night, but Brian came down and said, son, these are some of the things that real men need to learn. Thank you, honey. But it's the worst when you get in the habit of doing it the wrong way and find out that the way that you're doing it could cause injury and you need to be retrained in order not to hurt yourself. And it can be awkward to do it the right way. Have you ever had that where you're doing an exercise and it's working for you? And, and all of a sudden you realize, no, that's not the way you're supposed to do it. You're supposed to do it like this. And you're like, oh. No wonder it was too easy. Years ago, we got the Brita water filter, and I'm putting the water in, and it's coming right through, and Brian tries it, and he goes, 
there's no change in this water. It tastes just the same. I'm like, oh no, I totally taste a change. Brian, I can't believe it. Mm, mm, totally tastes different. And then I'm pouring it and this person says to me, what, what are you doing? I said, I'm doing the filter. They're like, you're totally doing it the wrong way. It's not even screwed in. Your water has no difference. I'm like, oh. I had to learn to do it the right way. Let me just tell you one more story and then I promise I'll finish. We were in England and the English are really big on the proper uh, pot of tea, right? And so as a housewarming present, this English couple came over and they brought me an electric kettle. You know, that's, it heats up, you just plug it in, you turn it on, heats the water up. I was so excited. So they said, oh, Cheryl, make us a pot of tea. So I stuck the tea bags in the electric kettle thinking that's how you did it. And they looked at each other. I mean, they were like, like, this is horrid. This is terrible. We've got an American on our hands. And she said, Cheryl, dear, I'm going to teach you to make a proper pot of tea. And the first thing she did is never, never put the tea bags in the electric kettle. And she, she went over, and what you do is you take a, your ceramic teapot, and you run it under the hot water. You put the hottest water in it that you possibly can, and you let it set while you heat up your other water. Then you pour out the hot water. You put the two tea bags in, and you pour the hot water in with that. And then you have another thing of hot water just in case the tea gets too strong. And you keep adding that to your, your, already, your already steeped pot of tea. So I, I do know how to do a proper pot of tea. But I had to learn, I mean, after doing it wrong. I got it wrong before I can get it right. And how many of us have to get it wrong before we can get it right? That's why we need discipline. That's why we need correction. So we can get it right. In John 15, 1 through 2, Jesus tells us that God prunes every branch that bears fruit. You know, perhaps you're being pruned. Perhaps you're being chastened. Maybe because God just wants to bring out more fruit and he needs to cut back certain branches that can't bear fruit. You know, maybe there's something that you really like to do and all of a sudden it's, it's as if God's saying, that's not for you, daughter. And you're like, but I love that. And he said, but I've got something new and I'm going to prune that part of your life so I can push you into what I really have for you. The pruning, the discipline, it's in order to make the branch healthier and more productive. God only disciplines to protect, preserve, prevent injury, present us with fulfillment of the promise of faith, push us to our potential. That's the only reason that he disciplines. It's for our good. But in order to receive all the benefits of this discipline, of this coaching, we must become participants in the marathon of faith. God has provided us with all we need to complete the race and win the prize. He has given us inspiring examples of ordinary people who are just like us, but who have successfully run the marathon. He has convicted us by his Holy Spirit about the weights. He has given us a list of sins to avoid. He has provided us with the best coach ever, the champion Jesus. He has given us the perfect course individually that he created and designed for each one of us. And he is providing all the discipline and the training we 
need to become the best runners in the marathon of faith. And as we cooperate with the divine coach and use the resources he has provided, we will be strengthened in faith. We will receive the motivation and stamina to continue to run. We will recover from bouts of weariness and discouragement and respond positively and productively to discipline. And we will, we will receive the promises of God. It's not time to drop out of the race. It's time to take off those stilettos or those construction boots and get your gospel shoes on. Because God wants to bring to us his promises. Are you weary? Are you discouraged? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He's already run it. He's already won it. And he is able to supply you with everything you need to win the race. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are the author and finisher of the race. Lord, you did it and you won. And we stand and we run in your victory. Lord, you have given us promises, Lord. And maybe right now they seem so far away, but we pray that you would work in us all that you need to, Lord, that you would inspire us with the stories of those who have gone before, that you would convict us about the weights and the snares, that you would help us to look to you, to listen to you, to obey you, to receive all the strength. And Lord, that you would give us the positive perspective on discipline that we might be trained in the ways of righteousness. Lord, work this in us that we might receive the promises, Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.